on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk on WHMP. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off. And every month, you know, there are politicians and there are public servants. Well, every month we get a chance to talk to a true public servant that's First Franklin's representative, Natalie Blay, and she's joining us today. Natalie, hello. Good morning. Good to hear your voice. Oh, Hopefully it's... see you in person one day. I really hope that happens soon, but in the meantime, whether we see each other in person or not, I will be applauding your efforts. Actually, not just your efforts, the legislature and Governor Maura Healey signed the fiscal year 24 budget. It's $56.2 billion, and it is, I know, uh, because we've talked to you for some time now, it is chocked full of your wish list. We have something to celebrate. So congratulations on this budget. Thank you. I mean, it was it was a long time coming, uh, but in the end, I think that it really was an incredible product that was the result of really good work on both the House and the Senate side uh, in terms of advocating for priorities. And in the end, you know, we ended up with some big wins. And some of those things include you know, $171.5 million to require public schools to provide universal school meals to all students free of charge. This makes Massachusetts the seventh state in the country to make this program permanent. You know, and we have heard about the remarkable success of this program from teachers, from students, from parents. Uh, so this was a really big win for, for Massachusetts as a whole. You know, in, in the yeah. debate, debate on that issue, it, it isn't just the nutrition that's so important to people, particularly those who can't afford it, but also there's something about kids eating together, eating the same meals together. There's something, mm -hmm. I think, socially really important, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it is a great equalizer, uh, you know, and it just ensures that not only are they, that students are having nutritious meals, uh, but there is no shaming that is happening in our cafeterias if a student cannot afford uh, what sometimes can be the only meal of their day. So this really was an incredible win um, for all residents of the Commonwealth, and we're, we're extremely grateful for, for the leadership of, of representatives like Andy Vargas, who's been fighting for this uh, at the state level, and certainly Congressman McGovern, who has been the main champion on this issue at the federal level. It's really great. Meanwhile, you have been talking to us for a long time about uh, your efforts in the legislature to uh, provide more for rural schools. So this budget, we have we have an increase for rural school aid. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, we were able to get the rural school aid up to $15 million, and that was an increase of $9.5 million over FY23. Uh, the Rural Schools Commission did recommend $60 million as what the total need is. And this is an incredible step in the right direction uh, in a single budget year to, to get that much more additional funding directed towards rural school aid. Yeah, additionally, we were able to get you know, money for regional school transportation $14.9 million increase over last year. And there was also... Uh, $1 million for non-resident vocational student transportation reimbursements. Um, you know, that was funded at $250,000 last year, and we were able to get that up to $1 million this year. You know, those reimbursements are critically important in our rural schools because of 
you know, how many students are transporting by bus and, and the length, you know, the distance that they're traveling. So, Right. I, I just, I just want to focus on that for one minute. People quite often who are concerned about the cost of our schools and the percentage of our taxation that goes to supporting our schools, but so much involves transportation in the, in the Hilltowns. Um, there's miles and miles and miles, square mile after square mile that, that students have to travel in order to get to school and that that burden is really great on municipalities. Here we have the state actually providing almost $100 million for regional school uh, transportation for uh, mostly for residents, but also non-resident vocational student transportation. It's, it's just a big win. Speaking yeah. of transportation, um, we, uh, we have some, uh, some important things that are going on statewide and locally with respect to transportation. And I'd like you to talk a little bit, I'd like you to help us celebrate um, the uh, fair share amendment and the fact that there is more f funds that most of us don't have to pay for <laughs> available for uh, both education and for transportation. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, you know, the FY24 budget does include $1 billion in revenues that were generated from the fair share ballot initiative that was approved by voters in November of 22. Uh, that established a new surtax on a 4% on annual income above $1 million. And you know, the intent of that funding was to invest um, in the state's education system and transportation sector. So we did create uh, two, it's a fund for the education, called the Education and Transportation Fund, uh, where those fair share dollars will go. And so one direct impact that we saw with those fair share dollars for transportation was you know, $184 million went to our regional transit authorities. You know, this is something that we have been fighting for to increase their line item because they're stretching every dollar as far as they can to provide public transportation services in their communities. But you know, they need more uh, if they want to provide reliable, uh, consistent, uh, frequent service for residents. So what we see here is that $90 million of those fair share dollars were directed to our regional transit authorities to support their operations. And that is something that I'm incredibly proud of uh, as the co-chair of the RTA caucus in the House. It's, it's really so important. One thing I really don't understand, Representative Natalie Blay of the 1st Franklin District, is um, the $1 billion from fair share dollars that tax above $1 million in annual income, that is an estimate, right? Because we don't know how much people are going to earn or be responsible to pay. So was a billion dollars just a projection uh, that we pulled out of the air, or is there some science behind it? Well, there are people who are much smarter than I am <laughs> with that number uh, going forward. But, uh, I just uh, want to stop you right there. It was second grade. <laughs> In your math class, you had just graduated from we were, we were Blue Jays to Squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> and here you so are talking about 56 point. Two billion dollars. Um, yeah, and I have trouble like balancing my checkbook. So I'm impressed. Yeah. They couldn't be that much smarter than you because you're doing this. But well, anyway, they they make the projections. Yes. Yeah. 
And so, you know, there's some comfort around that number. Uh, there's also um, the agreed consensus revenue. You know, we had the consensus revenue estimate that came out in January, uh, which is the $40.4 billion number, um, which was a estimated you know, looking at 1.6% growth. So, you know, we've been, I have to say, I've been incredibly lucky to have been elected when I was because the economic picture for the Commonwealth has been so positive um, since being elected, despite COVID. You know, the economic growth that we've seen, the economic projections um, have, have been really positive. And so I have not, as a legislator, since I was elected, have had to you know, face really difficult budget cuts. Uh, what we have been able to do is make really targeted investments in our families, uh, in individuals who most need it in the Commonwealth. Uh, and I, I count myself really lucky to be serving at, at a time like this. Well, Natalie Blay, you know, I, I, some people think that uh, being a radio talk show host makes you a journalist. I'm not. I'm a commentator, and I don't have to be impartial. I can tell you I think it's your constituents of, whom I am one of, uh, who are lucky, because it, at times when there's just not enough, at dire times, all of us know that you know you just scrape by and it takes some creativity and, and some forbearance. But when, when we're flush, when we have resources, that, you know, they say money can't, can't buy you love. Well, money can remove barriers. And so when we're a little bit more flush and we remove barriers, we need somebody who has their thumb on the pulse of their constituencies and who can use good judgment to figure out how can we use this as a moment, as an opportunity to advance where we're at? And you do that uh, all the time. And I think it's, I think it's your constituents who are lucky. So um, now that well, I've totally, I myself. <laughs> I I've myself destroyed lucky. my, I really, <laughs> I'm so lucky to have constituents who are so involved in the process and who remain in, in contact with me, uh, you know, who I can run into on the street and they can let me know exactly what we're talking, what, what is important to them. You know, hearing from constituents allows me to do my job better. And so I, I always encourage people to reach out by phone or email or come to one of my regularly scheduled office hours so that so that we can discuss things that are top of mind for people. Well, let's talk about some things that are on everybody's mind. And enough with the love fest. Let's talk a little gloom and doom here because uh, yeah. these floods, our farms, uh, the character of this region have been dealt blows in the past few months. I know that you have been, it's been taking up a lot of your attention and time. Um, so could you talk to us about the flood damage, about uh, what we're doing to sort of help uh, our precious farms and farmers um, continue the good work that they do? Yeah, it's been, uh, you know, being out in the fields with farmers, uh, standing alongside them in, in the soil, beautiful, fertile soil that has been really decimated, has been heartbreaking. Um, what we heard from farmers as they spoke with local, state, and federal officials is that you know, loans are great, but they don't actually help. It just puts them further in the hole. And what they really need is direct cash assistance. So 
Senator Comerford and I worked really hard, and I want to thank her for, especially for her leadership on the Senate side, uh, to get $20 million included in the supplemental bill in order to provide farmers with that direct cash assistance uh, to help with crop losses, to help with labor issues that they might be having in terms of, you know, ensuring that they have people there or not. Um, and the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture is in the process of developing an application to distribute those funds. Um, and if farmers have not yet been in touch with the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture, they absolutely should. Uh, and if you need, if you're a farmer who's listening and you haven't been in touch with the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture and you need a contact, reach out to my office. We'll make sure to put you in touch with the right person because we do wanna make sure that we have the right damage assessment. Right now, we know that it's about 100 farms that were impacted, approximately 2,500 acres, uh, which is the size of Boston. If you if you look, if you want to know to understand what 2,000 acres looks like, um, and then we're estimating upwards of 15 million dollars in damages. So the 20 million dollars will help, but it's not going to be everything. Um. In a couple of minutes before we, we take a break, I, I, I've been confused. That is, I've heard about this aid to farms, totally support it. I think it's just fantastic. At the same time, I've heard that unlike a drought year, when you just have one lousy year and you lose your crops for one year, these floods have take, they've stripped the ground of the rich topsoil you alluded to uh, when we first started talking about this. And um, I don't know whether that is that money to restore I don't know how you restore topsoil, but to help with that problem, or is it to compensate farmers for income loss so that they continue their business for future years? I, I don't understand what that money is intended to do. So it is intended for losses, the so crop losses. We're also seeing that farmers um, had physical damage to their land. Um, Jay Savage in Deerfield, for example, had what looks like the Grand Canyon flowing through his field to the to the river there. So there's certainly um, the, the financial crop losses that we're seeing. There's physical damage that we need to see fixed. Um, and there's also this, this fungus that we're talking about, you know, that thrives in wet conditions. Don't ask me to tell you what the exact name of it is. Um, but you know, we're, we're worried about the fall crops that, that we could see damaged and what the future impact of the potential of that, um, that fungus on the fields uh, could mean for that soil going forward. Well, our, our local heroes, our local farms have become uh, such an important part of who we are and how we see our local communities and all we can do is uh, whatever we can to help support uh, getting by this terrible moment in local farmers' histories. I've been using the number 72 because I read that. It sounds like there's almost 100 farms that have been impacted. Yeah, if you, if you look at central and western Massachusetts, it's approximately 100 farms. And the governor has established a separate fund for, phil for philanthropic donors uh, and Congressman McGovern and local legislators will be having a fundraiser on August 21st at BBC, Berkshire Brewing Company in Deerfield, 
to be able to raise money for the, that private fund where um, folks can, can come and drink some great beer at Berkshire Brewing Company uh, and also hopefully support local farmers. Both sound like a really good idea. <laughs> We're going to continue our conversation with Representative First Franklin Representative Natalie Blay after these short messages. When we come back, um, I want to ask you for a report card on our relatively new governor and her first budget. We'll be right back with Natalie Blay after this. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Mom, tell us about Tom Lake. A woman and her three daughters gather at the family's northern Michigan orchard where, while picking cherries, the daughters beg their mom to tell stories of the famous actor she long ago shared a stage and a romance with. Mom dishes, and the daughters soon find themselves examining their own lives, reconsidering the world and everything they thought they knew. Tom Lake, new from powerhouse author Ann Patchett. Pick up Tom Lake at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The HUG plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at HUGYourMoney.com. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Um, we are in a celebratory uh, mood because, uh, and we're talking to uh, First Franklin Representative Natalie Blay, and we've been celebrating the budget and this sort of really important ways that the, the budget, which was finally passed, um, better late than ever, $56.2 billion, is chock full of stuff that helps people's lives. We were also celebrating last November because um, uh, fruition here in Massachusetts, for those of us who want to see gender equity, um, the leadership in this commonwealth 
um, from our attorney general, our governor, our lieutenant governor, uh, is largely female, and that's something we could celebrate. Uh, Natalie, I wanted to tell you that um, Bill Newman was doing childcare with his grandchildren, and he came back in the studio the day he came back. He told us that his five-year-old granddaughter looked him in the eye, and she had a question for him, and, and she said, can boys be doctors too? <laughs> <laughs> a question which most of us just love. Um, but That's here we awesome. isn't that awesome? I know it, 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 there is hope. But um, <laughs> but I, I I have to ask. We have our our first uh, elected um, female governor, and this is her first budget. Um, how's she doing? So you know, she made when she was running. She made a commitment to be a governor for all of Massachusetts, and I have to say she has made good on that promise. Uh, she has been out here a, a lot, <laughs> you know, whether it was uh, the announcement of the creation of a director of rural affairs, which is something we have been fighting for since I was elected and Steve Kulik prior to me. Uh, you, she heard that that was something that we needed and made it happen within you know, the first couple of months. Or, I think it was April when that was announced. Um, she was out here standing with us in the fields, talking with farmers. She pulled me aside. Uh, she pulled the legislators, all of us who were there aside and said, we're going to get this uh, farm aid fund up and running by the end of the week. And I have to say, Buzz, <laughs> Okay, Governor. <laughs> and she did it. She, you know, within the next couple of ways, days, the United Way of Central Massachusetts was on board uh, in terms of helping to collect and distribute those private dollars uh, to Central and Western Massachusetts farmers who are not only impacted uh, by the, well, yeah. So the, having her be here, it has been phenomenal and it's not only her, it's her entire team. You know, she, when she comes out, she's with her lieutenant governor. She's brought cabinet members who have a say in whatever it is that we're discussing at that time. So it's a, it is a real team. Um, I will say we also have Kristen Ellico, who is having uh, her and Ann Gobi as the state director of rural affairs. It is really incredible to be surrounded by so many talented, uh, smart women. And Maura Healy is, is leading on changing uh, the way that government looks. And it's really incredible to be a part of. It, and it's, it's incredible to watch, too, because uh, it, it changes lives. It's, uh, I'm feeling really good. And by the way, Ann Gobi, who was Senator Ann Gobi, uh, who is the new director of rural affairs. Uh, I think it, that's in the Executive Office of Economic Development, I think. And she begs people to contact her office and let her know what we think is necessary in our rural uh, municipalities, in our, our rural region. Um, so I, I do encourage listeners to take advantage of that. And also, how do people get in touch with you, Natalie Blay, if people want to ask questions or give you comments or uh, or just make contact? How do they do that? Yeah. So call anytime. Uh, it's 362-9453. Or just shoot me an email, 
natalie.blay at uh, mahouse.gov. mahouse.gov. B-L-A-I-S <laughs> is how you spell Blay. Uh, Dan just reminded me because um, it is not B-L-A-Y. It is B-L-A-I-S. So, Natalie Blay, thank you so much for joining us. As always, I, really, uh, not, as a, not as a radio person, but as a constituent, as a citizen, I want to thank you and your colleagues and uh, the executive branch. Uh, we're all very pleased with this budget, and uh, we think it's going to change a lot of lives. Thanks for having me on. It was good to talk to you. We will be right back. We're going to be talking to uh, Massachusetts Teacher Association President Max Page about these uh, wonderful advances that the budget allows in education and other education-related matters. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links. Save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Buy a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than an online video and some questionable reviews to know what it actually feels like? At Talon Furniture, we mostly sell therapeutic mattresses, not Tempur-Pedic. Don't want to mislead you. Therapeutic. Made in Brockton by fellow Red Sox fans. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. Therapeutic mattresses are clean, no toxic off-gassing. Come to Talon and lay down on a therapeutic. See what it feels like. You can have all the time you need. And we don't roll it up like a burrito, stuff it in a box, and cram it in your car. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. We actually deliver your new mattress and set it up. Talon Furniture, a real store, just down the hill from Amherst College. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. My baby boy was a very good sleeper. He would nap in the morning and nap again in the afternoon, so my routine became that I would drink the first half of the time I expected him to sleep so that I could pass out the second half. Even during my pregnancy, knowing that it might be harmful to the baby, I could not stop drinking. The fear of any harm to that child was not enough to make me stop. Sometimes I would try to go to the park with him, but I was becoming really fearful of people finding out what a sick person I was. Today, since I joined AA, I don't have that sensation anymore at all. I have a purpose in life today. I know who I am. I know where I'm going and I feel good about it. I can be a mother to my child and I can be a wife to my husband and I couldn't be any of those things when I was drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous, it works. Look us up. 
online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting, and bon appetit. This is a, uh, a really special time of the week that uh, I get to uh, hear from uh, Massachusetts Teacher Association President, Professor Max Page of our state university here in Amherst, and uh, representing teachers throughout the Commonwealth uh, at all levels. Thank you for joining us, as always, Max. Thank you, Buzz. Great to be here. Well, let's use that word great. Quite often, we're just bemoaning uh, the plight of education, the, the lack of resources, the uh, the fact that society doesn't elevate uh, the needs of our children uh, to the extent that we think that it should. Um, but right now, we have something to celebrate, don't we? We do indeed, yes. the uh, Was it yesterday? Two days ago, I guess. The governor signed a budget that uh, is the first budget since we passed the fair share amendment last November. That's the so-called millionaire's tax. I really call it the multimillionaire's tax because it's really um, a, the very wealthiest in the state. And that is generating for this year $1 billion for public education and transportation. And so we're seeing the results of that. That's Let me just, so let me just clarify. I, I think everybody understands it, but for those people who earn, earn <laughs> I'm using air quotes, a million dollars, over a million dollars in a taxable year, that uh, whatever uh, monies that uh, income they have over a million dollars gets taxed at four percent, and that is estimated to be to generate revenue for fiscal year twenty four in uh, the roughly one billion dollar area. It might be more, it might be less. We just have projections, and based on that, that's what you were about to explain to us. That's exactly yes. I, actually, they just chose the the number of one billion. We actually think. The best estimates are closer to two billion, but the, the legislature, in you know, in being prudent, they said, well, "Let's just count on one billion this year, so that we don't overspend in case for some reason it's lower than that." So we 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 are going to see how much it is, but one billion dollars is included in this budget, and there are just some significant gains that we will see in our schools and colleges and transportation systems, and uh, and I just think it's worth reminding us that these long, long campaigns to finally get a progressive tax system, to finally win it, um, actually is pay, is going to pay dividends every single year. So if I could just, I'll just give you a few of the highlights. <laughs> I mean, uh, we have now universal school meals. 
what does that mean? Every student walks in the door, gets gets a free lunch, meaning a lunch as part of their education. No, there's no distinction, you know, how much money you have, how you have to apply for it. No, every kid who goes in there gets gets their meals. And that's just fantastic. Um, can I, can I just inter- have, I, I want to yeah, interrupt sure. you, Max, because you're an educator. So uh, these kids, uh, Representative Natalie Blay was saying it's, that's an equalizer. It it, it takes exactly. away. Could you explain what that means and the social implications of kids, not just nutritious, sure. but being Absolutely. eating together? They're, yeah, they're kids. You know, go in. You have to. You have to apply. You have to like be shown that you the URs have have need for the lunch, and you know, and then there's like a little bit of a you know a social um, issue about oh those are the kids who get free lunches and other kids pay. Let's not do that. We don't do that for the rest of the education. You don't pay more and get better textbooks, right? Everyone, kid who walks in the door gets the same education. And part of that education is we go to the we go to the cafeteria together. We have lunch together, period. Everyone gets that. And I it'll be good for the health of everyone. It'll, and, and if kids are hungry, they're not going to be learning well. And so that's fantastic. I will say that the next stage will be to... Um, inspire even better food <laughs> there's a wide range of the quality of the food and we in western mass when we've made connections with local farms so that the food comes from the, you know, the local farms into the schools that's a win for everybody so there's obviously work to be done in making us having really great food um, in our cafeterias but getting everyone to have lunches is great i just want to say one that's other cool. thing about that i remember as a kid you're in class you sort of you know, going through the tedium of being a student. And then there's a break and everybody takes yeah. a break together. They laugh together. Yeah, they right. make, you know, stupid comments together and they're, they're learning socialization. That's absolutely. And that's essential. That's an essential part of, of public schools. All right. So that's, what, so that's one component. All right. So then we have $150 million in new money to green to you know, improve and especially make more sustainable our public schools and college um, buildings. So that's a, it's a down payment. That's not nearly enough, but we are. Um, it provides a good you know addition to the programs we already have of the Mass School Building Authority to um, to improve our buildings and green them. That's a key part of our of the climate change efforts goals. Reaching the climate change goals that we have is to green our public buildings and we have uh, you know thousands of public school and college buildings all across the commonwealth that we need to make more and more sustainable that's another one um we have fully funded i should say the student opportunity act it's like an afterthought but remember back in 2019 we won a huge victory for investing over seven years ultimately we will have 1.7 1.5 billion dollars more in our public schools and very progressively distributed, meaning that the districts that need it the most, the Holyoaks and Chicopees, Greenfields, Pittsfield will get the most. And the legislature fully funded the, the fourth year of that implementation. And actually they did it without the fair share amendment money, meaning the fair share amendment money is spending spent on additional things that we need. So that's that's fantastic. Um, and then something close to close to your heart and mine is that we are investing substantially in getting towards um, true free debt free community college. So they have now we're, we'll do the start the mass reconnect program, 
which provides, makes sure that um, adults over 25 will be able to have their fees and tuition covered for community colleges. Um, there's $18 million for making nursing programs free because uh, at community colleges, because there's such a desperate need for more nurses. And there's substantial money put to set aside for general scholarships for public colleges and universities, as well as to plan for next year, meaning the fall of 2024, so that we can guarantee that um, tuition and fees and hopefully um, the rest of the cost of attending college, community college, will be debt free. That's the goal the Senate president set up, and I think that is what we will be uh, calling for. This must, for you and your colleagues, and by way of disclosure, I'm a, a retired uh, member of the MTA, always so appreciative of what it, it does for us. But it, this recognition that our legislature, almost in total, is, is giving to the needs of public higher education, uh, we're far from where we should be. There's still a lot of struggles that's going to happen in the future, yeah. but there seems to be a recognition of the importance that uh, public higher education plays in building a society. I think we are getting there. You know, um, Buzz, back in 2007 when I helped found Phenom, the Public Higher Education Network of Massachusetts, we had one of our principles that public colleges and universities should be debt free. And people, you know, some administrators literally laughed at me like, yeah, that's funny. Well, now we have, we're getting there. We are taking a major step forward to making sure community colleges are debt free. And of course, our Cherish Act, our key blueprint bill to advance public higher education says that there should be a guarantee for all four years. If you're very wealthy, you can go debt free. You're not going to get, you're not going to get aid. But for, um, for working class kids, they should be able to know from early on, you can go to a public college or university two years, four years, and we will make sure you're not going to live the rest of your years uh, with huge debt hanging over your heads. And I, and I want to emphasize um, over and over again, like it's so important. This is a act of both economic, but also racial justice, because for, for the long history of this country, um, people of color, especially black and Latino um, residents in Massachusetts have less wealth to rely on to pay for college. They just don't have that kind of generational wealth. And so that when, for them to go to college requires going into greater depth, debt rather, not in greater debt and taking much longer to pay it off. So that when we say you can go to college and graduate debt free, that is a way of saying we need and want more people of color, our young people of color, to be able to go to a college, two-year or four-year college of their choice. Yeah, we're going to take a break. We're talking with MTA, Massachusetts Teaching Association uh, President, Professor Max Page. I just want to say, Max, and again, as as a, uh, a, a member of the MTA throughout my career as a uh, professor at Greenfield Community College, uh, what made me most proud of course, it's an advocacy group. It's a collective bargaining agent for its membership. But as you just said, the MTA is about so much more than just focused on the interest of its members. It, while doing that, it focuses on the interest of everybody. Uh, those uh, To make sure that we achieve racial equity and inclusion, to make sure that um, people uh, are not uh, walking around with debts that they can't pay for the rest of their lives. It really is making us all better. I appreciate so much the work that you could do, and we're going to talk about it more right after this. 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Vice President of Mortgage Originations at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Did you know now is the perfect time to save on your mortgage? I'm mortgage originator Kimberly Gates. That's right, at Greenfield Co-op, it pays to get pre-approved. I'm mortgage originator Jessica Eau Claire. If you're looking to buy a home, be sure to get a GCB pre-approval to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan amount, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at WeinzickNursery.com. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Massachusetts Teachers Association President Max Page. And just before the break, I, I sort of teased the, I, I just wanted to say, Max, you know, so many people have, they have memories of or impressions of unions that uh, involve unions being uh, myopic and that, um, you know, at all costs, my my membership is all we really care about. But the MTA is very different in that regard. It's, I sense a, a shift uh, in the direction of um, what's best for our kids is best for our union. Is is, is that accurate? Yes, there's been a real conscious um, move over the past decade. I'm so proud of it that we have come to embrace the very simple and what should be obvious observation, which is that what happens outside the schools to our students and their families affects their ability to learn inside our schools and, and colleges. So that's why we've been at the forefront with our Raise Up Massachusetts coalition colleagues in winning universal sick time, paid family medical leave. We rose, we lifted the minimum wage from seven to 11, now 15, and now we're gonna push for, for higher, higher than that. We obviously worked on, on passing the fair share amendment to have more taxes, both for public schools and colleges and roads, bridges, and public transportation, because all of our students and families ride on those on those roads. So it is a, a sort of a basic commitment that we uh, want to advance. As the largest union in New England, we want to advance um, 
broad social, economic, racial justice in the Commonwealth. That's also the way we make better schools. But but I will say, Buzz, when we lift up the wages and benefits for educators, um, then we also lift up the importance and value of schools and colleges. As you, you may well know, a, a similarly educated person will make 20% less in our public schools than if they went out and did some other job with the same qualifications. Um, and that's wrong. Um, and that's why we, we need to continually push those that pay and benefits up so that people have the respect they deserve, especially for our lowest paid. Because our paraprofessionals, or everyone says are essential, get paid $20,000 a year, $23,000 a year. And that is criminal, really. And we have been working very hard this past couple of years to lift up those um, those workers so that they gain a living wage as they deserve as a very base minimum. And then we go higher from there. So anyway, the, the basic work of a, a union to to have a voice at work and raise wages is crucial to the larger goal of building better schools and colleges. So, Max Page, as we're uh, celebrating this budget, um, the Governor Maury Healy's first budget as governor, um, and FY24 has all these things which so many of us have sort of hoped it would include, and it does. We're still not out of the woods. There's still a lot to do, isn't there? There absolutely is, and there's... Um, you know, there's so much that we see many of the things in the budget as down payments, and we're going to be working ferociously this year to pass the Cherish Act for high quality debt free public higher education. We were really gratified that uh, the governor's and the legislature's ultimate investments were in the four areas of the Cherish Act that is debt free, more student support so they get through college successfully into graduation, um, fair pay and benefits for our educators and green buildings and state funding for our for repairing and building our, our public college and university buildings. So those are beginnings, but we really need to make a major leap. And I, I wanted to give an example, if it's okay, Buzz, of a program under G Governor Baker that got a lot of national press. It was called the Commonwealth Commitment. And this would allow students to go to college debt free. And it was a wonderful commitment. And he got lots of national press over it. Um, and so out of 150,000 college, public college students, how many do you think participated in this uh, sort of scholarship program called the Commonwealth Commitment, given that it was like this national event? Well, it, it sounds Take like, based on the hype, it should be a large percentage, <laughs> right? It should have been. It was about 350, 350, not 350,000, not 35,000. It was so complicated, so narrow, had such strictures that almost no one took part in it. And so I know that this governor wants to do things very differently. So I'm not suggesting it'll turn out that way. But I think what's really important as we look forward is that we get it right. This is a moment things are converging, as you suggested, on really seeing uh, that we have to complete the educational uh, pathway. That is from childcare and early ed through K-12 through public higher education, and we got to get it right. And if we do it on the cheap, or if we say like, you know, if we do something that looks good, but doesn't actually help equalize who gets to go to college and make sure that working class kids can go debt free, then we won't have achieved our goals. So that's our, that's our job is to really lift up what's the right policy, what's the right level of investment 
to truly achieve our goals. I just want to zoom out to 10,000 feet and take a look at what we're looking at. When we hear about what's going on in Congress, when we speak with our representative uh, in the House of Representatives, Jim McGovern, we hear such frustration about what they do has nothing to do with what we need. This budget is about helping people live better lives. This budget is a meaningful attempt to make society better, right? That is absolutely right. And I, and I, one of the things that I hope it shows um, is that it's these kinds of investments in our people that has always and always will be Massachusetts' um, competitive advantage. We've heard a lot about competitiveness. The, we do not have oil. We do not have diamonds, gold, silver. That's not what we have. What our competitive advantage is, is that we have an educated population. We have an, a generally open and supportive society for all people. We have reproductive rights, recognition of LG, the LGBTQ plus communities rights. This is a place that, that businesses want to be for the intellectual um, you know, capital that we have, but also the kind of commitments to um, strong public schools and colleges and a more open society. And I say that as a preface to say that my one big, the dark cloud hanging over this budget is that they didn't do a tax package. Many people heard about that there was going to be all these proposals. Some of those tax reforms are really good, supporting care of people with disabilities, supporting child care, people with uh, housing needs. But there was also a big proposal to give tax cuts to the rich, the, the very richest in terms of capital gains. And I really hope that um, those who are standing strong, and I think that's mainly from the Senate side, who are standing strong and saying, this is not how we get competitive. We get competitive and build prosperity by investing in our schools and our colleges and affordable housing and childcare and transportation. That's that's the answer, not somehow embracing trickle-down economics that is obviously long been debunked. Right, and progressive uh, tax rates where people who can most afford to pay taxes support their neighborhoods, their communities, their neighbors in uh, making sure that there uh, is the ability for everybody to sort of, we lift every boat in the harbor. Uh, how important is that? I, I guess uh, at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're raising the baseline so that next year we're in a better position to design a productive uh, budget. Is, is that how you see it as yeah. president of the MTA? That is absolutely how I see it. And I, I want to lift up that we have, we can do in this state most anything we want. If we were a country, if, if Massachusetts was the, the Republic of Massachusetts, we would be about the fourth wealthiest country per capita in the world. Meaning if we want to have the schools we want or the, or the child care or housing fairness, we can do that. And that will make us that much more um, prosperous. And we will be that example that we've long tried to be and sometimes have been all the way going back to John Winthrop when he said, let's be a city on the hill, you know, a light unto the universe. Well, look, uh, by the way, President Max Page, you had my vote if we become a country. <laughs> as president, but we we only have uh, a half a minute left, and in a half a minute, what are going to be your priorities now? Now that this budget's been passed, right? Thank you. Um, so this past Sunday at UMass Amherst, we had our big summer conference of about 500 MTA activists 
the board voted unanimously to endorse a campaign to get rid of the, the MCAS as a high school graduation, high stakes um, requirement, and to fully engage in a powerful campaign for the Cherish Act for high quality debt free public higher education. We have many other goals and priorities we'll be working on at our local level, but those two will be our our top statewide campaigns. And we join you in uh, hoping we could get those goals satisfied. Thank you so much. A, a very serious thank for you for all that you do, Max Page. It's uh, it's really wonderful talking to you. Thank you for joining us on Talk to Talk and like to Walk the Walk. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off. Uh, we have spent a lot of time, well, we always do, but this week we have focused on the criminal justice system. Sometimes it's in the context of what's going on with the uh, uh, Mar-a-Lago documents case or the insurrection related case um, coming out of D.C. Sometimes it is uh, talking about uh, the conditions of confinement for those people who are uh, populating our uh, jails and prisons. We we always focus on it, and we certainly have been this week, but there is something really interesting that we have learned of. It is a book that talks about how ordinary people can take extraordinary actions in uh, dealing a blow to this uh, punitive notion that we have that resulted in this mass incarceration of the last few decades in the United States and in this region as well. And we are very lucky to have Professor Jocelyn, um, I think, and I forgot, I think it's Simonson, because I've never met the Professor Simonson before. She's a professor of law and Associate Dean for Research and Scholarship at Brooklyn Law School. I asked you before we went on the air, and I forgot to make a note. Is it Simonson or Simonson? It's Simonson. You it got it right. It is Simonson. I did get it right. I, my, my subliminal brain is better than my uh, cognitive one. So I want to thank you so much for joining us. But you have written a book called Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Mass Incarceration. It is a very uh, creative series of theories which you have created and which you are now espousing in this book. I think it's going to be released uh, on August 15th, which is next Tuesday, and be available on our 
uh, your local independent bookstore. So, Professor Simonson, um, I think the best place to start is to talk about mass incarceration and uh, what interested you in changing our notion of how we punish wrongdoers in our society. Great. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here, and I'm inspired that you've already been talking about these issues. Uh, for my part, um, I was a public defender for five years in New York City before I became a law professor. And now I teach and think about and study the criminal law, criminal procedure, and more broadly, how uh, in American society, although it's true in many parts of the world, we use criminal law to solve our social problems and promote safety rather than thinking about other ways that we might do it. And mass incarceration is one of the end results of that jumping to criminal law to solve problems. So I saw this day to day when I was in the Bronx criminal courthouse, people being uh, pushed in and out of jail for things like not having a home or using drugs. And we can see it uh, in the outcome when we look at the numbers. The fact that in the United States, we have uh, nearly 2 million people in jails and prisons. But if you think about the scope, it's also true that nearly 8 million people are being cycled in and out of jails and prisons every year. And jails and prisons are violent places that we know in the end uh, don't prevent people either from not having homes when they're released or from not harming people when they're released. And so one way I've come to think about it um, is again to look back at the beginning of how we're using state resources to uh, try to make sure that people have homes or to try to make sure that people aren't harmed from the use of drugs. Or I think uh, more centrally in a lot of people's minds, uh, to try to make sure that people are safe and free from violence in their lives. And it's, I'm not the only one, clearly, who thinks mass incarceration is a problem. I think uh, in my professional lifetime, uh, we've seen people start to realize, both people who are in it and affected by it, which of course is many people, but also people who aren't as much affected by it in their daily lives. I think we are starting to notice at least that it's a problem at least that we overuse jails and prisons to solve our social problems. And at least since the uprisings in Ferguson and in 2020 after George Floyd, that perhaps we use the police too much to solve our social problems and that there are better ways we could be doing that. But as a law professor, as someone who's seen as an expert on these issues, um, one of the things that uh, has moved me over the years and that I have spent uh, my time studying and thinking about is that so often we look to experts and professionals and public officials to solve what we call the problem of mass incarceration. And when we do that, I think we're missing out on broader ideas, expansive ideas of what we could be thinking about when we think about safety and justice. And also we miss out on having regular ordinary people and people directly affected by the criminal system take a part in deciding from the square one, how should we be promoting safety in our communities? What does justice even mean? And so that's how I came to focus on the kinds of organizing ideas, activities, and things that are in the book. 
It's it's so interesting. I love the way that you uh, couched that because as a scholar, your scholarship, your expertise, your vast knowledge of this arena, ultimately at a time when our democracy is being most threatened, you're saying let's use those democratic principles to let uh, people in the communities that we're talking about protecting have a part to play in how we should deal with wrongdoing when it's wrongdoing or when it's not wrongdoing, how we can avoid sending them to jail or prison, particularly since we know recidivism rates seem to indicate that ain't working, right? Exactly. And I love this mention of democracy because, again, it's something that I think in general people in the United States often will recognize and say, which is that we have a democracy problem. There are a lot of structural things around us that are anti-democratic. We are suppressing the vote, etc. It turns out, though, that the criminal system is itself profoundly anti-democratic. It literally takes people out of the polity. And then when it comes to the neighborhoods and communities that are most heavily impacted by policing and by mass incarceration, studies have shown that political participation is very low in those communities, that disenfranchisement is high in those communities. And again, if we're thinking about where experts are, if you ask people who live in neighborhoods most profoundly affected by mass incarceration, they will say that they don't feel heard that they don't feel a part of their democracy. And so one of the things that I look at in the book is not just complaining about how the system is anti-democratic, although I'd be happy to do that all day, (laughs) but to look at moments, at ways in which people are getting together and they're saying, we do vote if we can, and we think voting is important. We do think traditional forms of democracy are important, but we're not going to wait for democracy to work in that big picture way. We're gonna take action together and organize together to help people who are caught up in the criminal system or to engage ourselves in thinking about how we think our city or our state should be spending its money. And we're gonna do this collective work together and we're gonna act out democracy. So let's, We're let's, gonna act out justice. Yeah, let's talk about the uh, professor of law Jocelyn Simonson, who also is an associate dean for research and scholarship at Brooklyn Law School. I remember, well, it's almost 50 years ago uh, when I was, uh, the first time I heard a particular term was by my criminal law professor in law school who said to me, uh, and I've since heard it, oh, 10,000 times, and I've probably said it, double that. That is what they did. That's not who they are. We are not talking about just this, this label of, you know, criminal that people get hung on their neck, a little sign that they're, you know, evil. Uh, in fact, they are our neighbors. They're members of our community. They're people who made mistakes and who, who among us have not made mistakes in our lives. And, and there's mistakes and then there's bigger mistakes. And um, so could you give us an example, Professor, of the kinds of things that ordinary people could be engaged in that would help defray this tendency to sidetrack this tendency to go straight to jail, do not pass go. What kind of things can people do? So in the book, I focus on a series of ways that that people are currently all across the country getting involved in their criminal system. Uh, One 
basic way that a lot of people are doing is joining court watching groups. So I don't know the last time, you know, listeners have been to criminal court. Perhaps it was as a juror, or perhaps it was because they were uh, arrested or know someone who is, perhaps they're lawyers. But those are usually the only people in criminal courtrooms. And it turns out we all have a First Amendment right to sit in the audience and watch criminal court in action. And if you do that, what you'll see is not long murder trials or things that look like law and order. Instead, you're more likely to see um, person after person, and again, as you say, they're people, being uh, brought in handcuffs before a judge and summarily either uh, sentenced to jail, given a fine, or told to come back to court. And so what organized, uh, what organized court watching groups are doing across the country is coming together, uh, often wearing matching t-shirts, holding clipboards, and sitting in courtrooms and observing what happens, writing down what happens, and then telling the public what they see. Sometimes it's through live tweeting or tweeting after they leave the courtroom. Uh, often it's through reports and press conferences and then broader advocacy. And what's exciting about court watching is not just the information that we all get when court watchers in our communities see what they see, but also the way that people are transformed and changed just through the experience of sitting in a courtroom and sitting in a courtroom as a collective of people. Because you can know intellectually that this is how policing works and prosecution works, but to sit there and see it is something profoundly different. And, it's and profoundly so the other thing that I've found. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say the other thing that I found in talking to organizers and people doing court watching is that they are radicalized as they sit there and they come out and they say, wait a minute, that's not justice. And so let's think together about what justice can mean. Yeah, that that is so important. It, we, we tend to, it's so insular. The criminal justice system is this thing that we have nothing to do with, except if we're you know, the officers of the court are somehow involved in it. But the truth is, it's our court. that It's our taxpayers' money that supports that court. The structure of it, we have say over. Our legislatures can influence it, and as can we. We are talking that's to... Right. That's and right. And so often, so often prosecutors refer to themselves as the people. Right. The people of the state of New York, the people of the state of Illinois, it's how the law and order credits open. And so if you sit in a courtroom as a group, you're actually saying through your presence, wait a minute, we're the people too. And actually, that's how our Constitution begins with we the people. We are going to be uh, talking more with Professor uh, and Associate Dean Jocelyn Simonson of the Brooklyn Law School, who's written a book, Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling mass incarceration. I'm loving this conversation. It'll continue in just a minute. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 
1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. At Greenfield Savings Bank, one of the things we love about living in the Valley is all the locally grown food that's available here. For more than 25 years, a local nonprofit called CESA, which stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, has been promoting locally grown food and supporting farms, farmers markets, and food businesses in our Valley. And to support CESA's mission, Greenfield Savings Bank is giving new customers a CESA canvas tote bag as a thank you gift when they open a new free GSB checking account. There are no monthly fees, no transaction fees, and you get free online banking, free e-statements, free debit card, and free GSB mobile app, including depositing checks from your mobile device. Our existing customers can also get a CISA Canvas tote bag when they enroll in GSB's free mobile banking or sign up for e-statements. So, join GSB and show your support for locally grown food and local banking. Get your CISA Canvas tote bag thank you gift from Greenfield Savings Bank. See bank or visit greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're continuing our conversation with attorney, professor, and associate dean, Jocelyn Simonson of the Brooklyn Law School, who has written a book, Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Mass Incarceration. It's, its brilliance is its, in, its obvious simplicity, which is our criminal justice system is a product of what we make it, and we should feel empowered and do stuff about it. So, uh, Jocelyn, I wanted to ask you about bail. In my four and a half decades involving the criminal justice system, I've seen a substantial uh, change for the benefit of us, all of us, in uh, orientation towards bail here in Massachusetts. What what are you writing? What does your book inform us? So in my book, I focus on how people are getting together collectively to push back about phenomena like bail and money bail. So with money bail, um, Someone is held in a cage in pretrial detention while they're still presumed innocent just because they don't have the amount of money that the judge or the state says they have to pay. And more and more, as you say, people are starting to realize that this is an injustice. But it's one thing to realize. Uh, one of the things that I write about in my book is the growing phenomenon of community bail funds and community bond funds. And you actually have quite a number of them in Massachusetts, including the Massachusetts Bail Fund. And what a bail fund does is it gets together and it posts bail for people who it does not know. It posts bail for strangers, which is a new and disruptive concept in the world of bail because traditionally you think of bail being paid by someone themselves, by their mother, by their family, something like that. But a bail fund gets together and they say, we don't think it's just to hold someone in jail because they can't afford money. We're going to bail them out. When they come back to court, we'll get that money back so we can bail someone else out. 
And many bail funds give support for people they've bailed out. Some don't, there's a wide variety. But what bail funds have done over time is grown capacity and grown in their ability to tell the stories of what happens when people are free instead of put in cages while their cases are pending. They don't lose their homes. They don't lose their children. They're able to come back to court. They're able to fight their cases. And very, very often, cases are dismissed where otherwise someone would plead guilty. And they don't lose their the job. About, they're, they're able to go to work and continue that's to be right. productive. Exactly. And, and the gorilla in the room, one. yeah, when we're talking about bail, is the cost of confining someone pending trial. It is far more expensive than what the bail fund needs in order to have that person released, continue working, continue parenting. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I started studying and following bail funds around 2010. And in 2015, in uh, 2015, I'd say there were two or three active community bail funds in the country doing exciting work, including the Massachusetts Bail Fund. And fast forward five years to 2020, there were more than 100 bail or bond funds in operation around the country. You can look, for example, at the National Bail Fund Network, which uh, if you go to their website, lists bail and bond funds around the country. So it's not just that bail funds, to me, seem important and exciting. People around the country are finding the power in getting together and bailing people out. And to be clear, the power initially is the freedom that you give individuals when you do this work, absolutely. But there's also something bigger that happens when a group gets together and they say, you the judge seem to declare that the community is gonna be safer if somebody's in a cage, but we are the community. And we're saying, we actually feel safer if you don't put that person in a cage where studies show they're more likely to be arrested in the future. And instead, we try to give the supports to that person. And as you say, who could actually be providing supports to that person. Well, the state and the city and the county could be spending their money differently. Right. Could it, be supporting people instead of putting them in cages. And so bail funds start to live out that reality, live out that alternative vision of justice and safety. And when they do that, they really put the system in its place. And so what we find is around the country, officials are really angry that bail funds exist because they reveal profound truths about the injustice of how we do things every day. It's so true. And, and we can see the truth of how it's worked in the past. You know, they, they always say the benefit of history is we get to stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, but see things with a clearer perspective from up on their mm -hmm. shoulders. Well, bail hasn't worked in so many cases. It's Of course, there's some cases where uh, there's dangerousness involved and we can demonstrate it, but uh, that's there's few of them and far more we're wasting our human resources by putting people in jail pending trial. I, I want to ask, uh, we only have a few minutes left, but participatory defense that you write about, what is that exactly? Participatory defense is when people get together in groups to support people who have ongoing criminal cases or sometimes immigration cases or housing cases. And so they meet, a participatory defense hub meets regularly to dissect cases, uh, do investigations, and intervene in those cases through things like videos that show that somebody who's charged with a felony 
also has a family and he's cooking breakfast for his kids and bringing them to school. In other words, showing the humanity of somebody. And what these hubs find over time as they work on case and case is there are times where a public defender will say, there's no chance at a long prison sentence. But then through the intervention of participatory defense hub, there will be a different outcome. There will be time saved. And this is another group tactic of intervening in the system that has exploded over the last 10 years. Well, there's so much the more. The other we... thing I... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, I was going to move on to another tactic. So if you had questions about participatory defense, I, I'd love to talk more so about it. So was I. I was going to talk about people's budget. That's what I was going to ask you about. Yes. Well, I, I, I did want to mention that at, toward the end of the book, after talking about bail funds, court watching, and participatory defense, you know, I was noticing in 2020 as I was writing this book that so many people who were involved in these in these group activities within criminal courts were also starting to branch out into budget fights, into people's budgets, into times where people get together and they go out into the communities and they ask them, if you had $8 million or $8 billion, depending on where you are, how would you want to spend your money? Would you want to spend 40 to 50% of it on policing and incarceration, or would you feel safe if it was spent in other ways? Often when people are asked about it in that way, where do they want the money to go? They actually want the money to go to education, to housing, to social services, to drug treatment, to whatever it might be that makes them feel safe, including preventing violence in the first place. And so a lot of these same groups are joining coalitions, not just with people who think about the criminal system, but people who think about all kinds of social problems and opportunities in their communities. And they're presenting really complex, detailed people's budgets in Los Angeles, in Seattle, in Nashville, all across the country, and also in smaller uh, towns and counties as well. And they're showing where the people, as we were talking about, it's really a profound act of democracy. We're the people. And this is how we think our city, our county, or our town could be keeping people safe and promoting justice. And those ideas of safety and justice are very different from what the system says they are. You know, it's as unique a concept as it is a classic concept. I think uh, this book is Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Mass Incarceration by Professor Jocelyn Simonson. I think it's kind of an operator's manual for a criminal justice system that is owned and operated by the people it's designed to serve. I thank you so much, Jocelyn, for joining us today and for writing this book. I think it's an important read for people. Once again, Radical Acts of Justice can be purchased at your independent bookstore. It'll be released on August 15th, this coming Tuesday. Good luck with the book, and thank you so much for writing it, Jocelyn. Thank you so much for having me, and have a great day. You too. We're going to be back. We're going to be talking with Laurie Sanders, Elizabeth Sharp of Historic Northampton about reopening the Shepherd Barn right after this. Somebody call you a dirty night. Keep on walking. Keep on. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
People here are raving about QC Kinetics and how regenerative medicine has changed their life. People like Helen, an avid mountain climber who got sidelined when an accident left her knees in constant pain. I was not able to train or do really anything on my knee. Helen was told surgery would be her only option. But then she found QC Kinetics and was treated with natural biologics designed to repair and restore tissue in her knees. Three months later, she was climbing the highest mountain in North America. I got a very quick resolution to my pain. I began treatment in March, and I summited Denali June the 7th. It was super successful, and I recommend everyone seek out QC Kinetics as an alternative to surgery. Get your life back with lasting results. No surgery, no drugs, no downtime. Call QC Kinetics today. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. The education assistance I received made it possible for me to be the first person in my family to go to school and graduate debt-free. That education helped get me to the first day at my dream job, a job that I can still hold while I serve part-time. That job, plus the other benefits possible from the Army National Guard, helped me become a first-time homeowner. Also, part of my role as a National Guard soldier means I know that I can be one of the first to respond and help my community if disaster ever strikes. I'm extremely proud that I get to serve my community. And that first step I took by joining the Army National Guard has made all the difference in my life. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com to find out what firsts are available to you in the Army National Guard. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association and this station. My name is Joanne Vanine. I am a CASA worker, court-appointed special advocate for the organization Friends of Children. I first got involved with the CASA program back in 2004. I was still full-time employed at that time as the uh, dean of students at UMass Amherst. The case that inspires me relates to a young man. There were issues of physical abuse. There were issues of drug abuse. Through the advocacy work that I did, this young man was placed with a family in Springfield. It was a rocky start. But the good news is that this foster family stepped up and said that they would adopt him. Almost immediately, I began to see the change in him in terms of his own confidence in himself, which clearly derived from a sense of security. And that also was evidenced in the way he performed in school. The really happy ending to this is I got a text message saying to me, look at my report card, and he is on the honor roll. Learn more about becoming a CASA advocate by visiting Friends of Children's offices on Route 9 in Hadley or going to friendsofchildreninc.org. At the Northampton Survival Center, we believe that no one should choose between paying bills or buying food. In the Northampton Survival Center, queremos que nadie debería elegir entre pagar sus cuentas o comprar alimentos. We supply free groceries for people in 18 Hampshire County communities in a safe outdoor distribution. Proveemos comestibles gratis a personas en 18 comunidades del condado de Hampshire en una distribución segura y al aire libre. For information about grocery pickup or delivery, call 413. 586-6564 or visit NorthamptonSurvival.org. Para información sobre recogida o entrega de comestibles, llame al 413-586-6564 o visítenos en NorthamptonSurvival.org. If the challenges of the past year have left you needing help, we are here for you. Si las dificultades del año pasado lo han llevado a necesitar ayuda, estamos aquí para usted. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. There is a lot of excitement about uh, a grand opening that's going to be happening at historic Northampton involving the Shepherd Barn. And with us to talk about it are co-directors, Laurie Sanders and Betty Sharp of Historic Northampton. And I'd like to start with you, Laurie. Like, how about a short introduction for those listeners who may not know, what is Historic Northampton? Well, Historic Northampton, I guess many people would call it a, a historical society. That's what its name was years ago. And we are the museum that keeps the history of Northampton. We have about 40,000 objects in our collections. We have a exhibit space and the barn, which has been a project for us in the in the makings for about almost 10 years, is, is really exciting for us. It's the next big step. And anyway, we're excited to have the community come. And so, um, Betty Sharp, what, well, it's called the Shepherd Barn, right? So mm-hmm. what's going to be happening next Saturday, that is the 19th from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, there's the grand opening of the Shepherd Barn. What are we talking about? Well, uh, the Shepherd Barn is one of four buildings on our property, and it's been restored, and it has been renovated so that inside what people will see is a restored barn, and the earliest timbers are built in or were farmed in about 1802, 3, 4. And they will see the original frame, and they'll see an exhibit in there of signs and all kinds of things related to life in Northampton, um, as well as there'll be public, sp- there'll be some new spaces that have been created by a group of volunteers and with our timber framers. So there'll be an L that has bathrooms in it and a shed space that has a green room and um, storage for us. So they'll see an expanded barn if they had seen it maybe five, ten years ago. It sounds interesting. In terms of shepherd barn, is it called shepherd because of the livestock that was originally kept there, or is it called shepherd because of the name of somebody? That's that's a good question. It's called shepherd because of the name of the family that owned the barn. So the shepherds owned this barn. They built, they um, purchased this property in 1856, and they used it as a horse and carriage barn from about the 1850s to the 1920s. And then in 1969, Edith Shepherd, the last of them, donated this pro- the entire property to the Northampton Historical Society. Yes. Well, it's really well, there goes my image. I, I had this shepherd with a shepherd's hook <laughs> walking around, leading his sheep into the barn, but no. But Buzz, you're gonna you're gonna so love it because the space, these timbers. So, one of the things I like to think about is that the pitch pine timbers were cut, as Betty said, in 1805. So that's the second term of Thomas Jefferson as president. But if you look at the timbers, they probably started growing at least in maybe in 18, in 1680, but maybe even earlier. So, you know, the, and then there's that component, sort of the environmental component, when you can look at the structure and the, as you walk in, it's that beautiful mortise and tenon, and the timber frame just rises, and then the barn itself, in addition to all these artifacts which have incredible stories, the barn itself has all these interesting elements that we had a forensic architect um, look at the space, and so there are all these details that I think people are going to, everyone, we're excited about it, and I think 
other people will be too. You know, I like to think about the wonder of talk radio because of what we do every day, but I, sometimes it fails. And one way it fails is to not catch the radiant look on your face, Laurie Sanders, as you <laughs> just described <laughs> that, and of Betty Sharp's face when she was talking about the age of these timbers. But uh, let's go back and just, I, I majored in stupid questions, so let me ask you one. What is it about understanding, reflecting upon our history that um, attracts you to this position, uh, Betty Sharp? Why, why, do you, why are you so focused on the history of Northampton? Well, one of the reasons that, or the way that we're focused on it at Historic Northampton is really through what we call material culture. It's the things, the stuff that people made and used and touched that we can see today. And you can learn a whole new kind of history from just looking at those things and examining them. As Laurie said with the forensic architecture, one of the things we learned is that the barn's origins are really a mystery. We know that it was probably moved to this property. It was there by the 1850s. But we don't know what it was originally built for. Now, if you study the inside of it, and we'll be able to show you that if you come to the event on uh, August 19th, is that there was originally a partition that went long ways across it. It wasn't built as a barn. The two big barn doors that you see today weren't there. There were two smaller doors on the gable ends, and there were two lofts of different heights neither of which could accommodate a hay wagon. So what was it for, and where else in Northampton did it come from? Was it a carriage-making workshop? Was it a warehouse? I like to think maybe it was used later at the canal for storage things, but I don't, we don't know. And that's one of the mysteries. You just sort of keep looking, and maybe one day you'll find out. It's a mystery, but it also transports you. Mm. Yeah, there's a movie, I can't remember the name of the movie that I saw. It was about a... Um, it, it wasn't a great movie, but it was a way to pass an hour and a half. And it was about a tour guide in Greece. And other than the silliness and the travails that she went through, um, at one point she leads her little tour group up to the Acropolis. And there is the ruins, all these grand columns, you know, that they're standing under. And people are talking about the things that they're looking at. And then she said, but none of those things things is why I love this. Mm -hmm. uh, could we just be silent and just listen? And when everyone goes silent, you can hear the breezes going through the columns. And she says, I love to remember that that's exactly what they were hearing 2,500 mm -hmm. years ago when mm -hmm. they stood in this exact location. I, I, I still remember that. Uh, so maybe it wasn't a dumb movie. It actually uh, mm -hmm. motivated me to have a profound interest in what came before us because and be transported um, to oh. to that. How long have you, Laurie, been involved as co-director or in any way with Historic Northampton? Well, Betty and I first got involved um, as co-directors in 2016. But I want to I want to just sort of fast forward back to the barn and why this project and the opening is just so. I don't know, so important for us, but so important for the community. And one of the things that's just been marvelous about it is how many people have touched the project. Because um, we had, and you may be aware that at one point we pulled the barn off of its original footprint using ropes 
people power and grace. So 200 people participated at that point. 300 people were there in, on a cold January day to help us pull it back. Other people have helped build the timber frame. Other people have helped lay the double layer of locally sourced hemlock flooring. There's all kinds of messages on the, on the pegs that are used for the mortise and tenon. And so there are more than 700 people who have volunteered to help on the project, in addition to all the contractors and all these other people who, who helped us kind of conceive what's next for the Shepherd Barn. So anyway, uh, Benny and I, we just love it because for what is historic Northampton? It's a place you can learn history, you can develop a deeper sense of place, and sort of that whole, like the, the touching of this project and how many people have literally sweat equity in the project I don't know. It's 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 great. It's it's great. It's profound. It's not just celebrating Northampton's history as a community. It's celebrating Northampton today as a community. We are going to take a break. We are talking to co-directors Laurie Sanders and Betty Sharp, co-directors of Historic Northampton, and we're going to focus on what people can expect when we could go to a week from tomorrow, August nineteenth, from two to four. There's going to be a grand opening of the Shepherd Barn, named after the shepherds. We'll be right back. Whatever may come, the world keeps revolving. They say the next big thing is here, that the revolution's near. But to me it seems quite clear that it's all just a little bit of history repeating. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and Habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Grab a hammer, lend a hand, build a better world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, pvhabitat.org. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're back on Talk the Talk, and every once in a while we get on this show to just do something that's just uh, lovely and moving. And we were just talking about uh, with Laurie Sanders and Betty Sharp, the co-directors of Historic Northampton, we were talking about the grand opening of the Shepherd Barn, which is going to happen on Saturday, August 19th. Put it on your calendar from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, a chance to explore this extraordinary uh, rehabbing of the, the Shepherd Barn and to see the artifacts involved and the fun activities for adults and children and the cool history. And just before we took a break, I, I made a comment um, based on, on Lori's explanation of how many people were involved in this from the community in restoring this barn. Um, I talked about how it's not just about Northampton past, it's about Northampton present as a community. And during the break, uh, Betty, you pointed out it's also about Northampton future. It is. Uh, when we were thinking about how to restore the barn, um, we asked a number of artists who are visual artists and performing artists and playwrights how they would like to see the barn restored, how they would use it. Did they have any interest in using it? And the reply was just overwhelming that this is a small, it's an intimate, it's a historic space, and it speaks local history. So one of the things they suggested, and which we have done, is to leave the floor open. So the floor is open for all kinds of performance. In fact, we're going to have three plays in there starting the following week. And uh, for open for dance, performance, music, art, wh whatever. And so then we hope we, we will be inviting people and we hope people will get in touch with us to talk about how they might want to use the barn because we see it as a community space. It sounds indeed like a community space. Will, will these performances uh, be all related to history or will they be contemporary kind of topics that these plays involve? The plays are historical. They are about, there's three plays about three cent, which represent three centuries of Northampton history. Um, one of the topics is the 1600s. It's about the woman who was accused of witchcraft twice and lived on our property. Actually, we had one of her descendants on the yeah, air. Yeah. yeah. And the second one is about Jonathan Edwards and his, a woman he has enslaved whose name is Rose and what will happen to both of them when the Edwards are removed, when Jonathan Edwards is removed from the pulpit. Rose questions him, presses him, what's going to happen to me? Because she's established a relationship with another man in town. And then the third one is about abolitionist Lydia Mariah Child, whose husband is here growing sugar beets um, for the abolition movement. And she gets the offer to edit a newspaper, an abolitionist newspaper in New York, the National Anti-Slavery Standard. And the question is, should she go? Should she go? But anyway, all these kinds of things and more will take place in the barn. And we see them as local history or local history inspired. If people want to find out more about Historic Northampton generally, about those performances, or about the opening of the Shepherd Barn on August 19th, how do they get in touch with you? How do they find out more? They can go to our website, which is historicnorthampton.org. So um, when y all these wonderful activities, uh, Laurie Sanders, that people can uh, look forward to enjoying on August 19th, can you give us a little bit more detail about what the day is going to be like on well, August 19th? Well, you know, it's only a couple of hours, right? So mm -hmm. hopefully it's w the first visit of, of many. 
But I guess Betty and I really see this. It's a project that is um, that we've been, all of us collectively, the community, you know, thinking about working on for a long time. So it's a real opportunity to celebrate. So as part of that celebration, not only will we have, you know, fresh watermelon, but we're going to have, of course, Harold's ice cream uh, for people. And but the yo-yo team is going to come, and there will be fun activities for kids on the lawn, and then it'll be an opportunity for. Um, our, our chief uh, contractors, carpenters, will be there. Alicia Spence, who's the lead timber framer, and another person named Miles Herder, they'll be there to ask questions of. And I think so many of the people who volunteered building the timber frame and in other ways will, will also be there that, that afternoon. So anyway, it's really, it's really just an opportunity for us to not only showcase the restoration, but... but um, all be together. It it sounds like it is uh, quite a difficult thing to pull all these parties together to do um, uh, a mission. The grand opening, the restoration of the shepherd barn is easy to say, but everything that's involved in it sounds really complicated. Who pulled all that together? Was it you two? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we have we have an unbelievable team. Uh, helping us make it happen. I mean, the contractors that we're working with, everybody, it's it's just sort of everything you hope for a community project where it's there's a there's an investment beyond it's not just a job. It's but people see that anyway, everyone is stepping up and there's no cutting corners. In fact, it's all okay. Well, you know what? We could do it this way, but you know what? It would be even better if we did the project this way. And so anyway, it's been it's been really an incredible, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I might sound like a broken record, but it has been an incredible project for me and Betty. And to see the support of the community um, in all kinds of ways, physically, financially, from their ideas, it's... Well, that's it's, a good segue into my next question. Uplifting. How was this done financially? Where did the source, what was the source of, of the resources that you used to be able to pull this monumental thing together? Well, there were a few big grants, the Community Preservation Act grants, a series of those. Mass Cultural Council gave us, uh, no, Mass Cultural Council gave us two, two grants. Um, and Be the Beverage Foundation, the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, I mean, there are and quite a number of major grants from individuals. If people want to support Historic Northampton, can they? Great. That would be <laughs> fantastic, yes. And in fact, uh, if you're interested in coming to the opening, which uh, we hope you are, or or to the plays, as, as Buzz mentioned, you know, go, go on our website. But of course, there there, there is a donation opportunity um, to, to, to participate. And, you know, the that's the way the organization is going to be successful. As as a private nonprofit institution, we, we depend on we depend on individuals, and um, and these grants have been for this project cr critical. We we can't overstate the the value of those large grants from the Community Preservation Act and Mass Cultural Council and and all these other private foundations. They've been in, in the absence of it, it's a it's a it's a wonderful idea, but. Um, those are the resources that really made it made it happen. And I can't overstate how Laurie Sanders' face lit up when I said, "Think about donating to this." <laughs> <laughs> Radio once again failed us. <laughs> so Betty Sharp have, uh, I mean, obviously as a co-director of Historic 
uh, Northampton, you, you come in contact with a lot of people who are supportive of the mission of Historic Northampton. But generally speaking, um, does everyone in Northampton know about Historic Northampton? Is it something that really uh, is as well known as you hope it would be? Let's just say not yet. Um, we wish more people knew about it. We hope um, a, a place like this and uh, concerts on our grounds and all that sort of thing bring people in and get them to learn more about Northampton history and be part of what we do. It's, it's a very sweet space. It's, it's two acres. So the original home lot from the Parsons was about four acres. And the three houses in the, in the barn constitute still a little more than two acres of that home lot that was established in 1654. So it's, I don't know, for a downtown location, uh, that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, you know, we are all products of our experience, and the experience of the community that we live in is part of what makes us who we are today. So every, every time I focus on, especially with historians, like both of you are, um, focus on history. I have a, a reminder of what brought me to where I am today and appreciation for those who came before us and helped forge uh, the beautiful communities we live in in Western Massachusetts. And Northampton is a very special one. So one more time, we only have a minute and a half left. Laurie Sanders and then Betty Sharp. Laurie, why should people come and how do they, how do they learn more about the Shepherd's Barn opening? So please look at our website, Again, I'll just repeat, it's Saturday, August 19th from 2 to 4. We'll have lots of nice uh, people, activities, really interesting things happening in the barn. And, of course, the watermelon, ice cream, all those nice things. So please come. And, Betty, one more time, why should people come? <laughs> they should come to see a wonderful artifact of Northampton history, be part of it, be inside of it, and think about the wonderful things they'd want to do there. And where will it be? At 46 Bridge Street, or 66 Bridge Street, at Historic Northampton. Lots of parking there? No, no. but there's parking available out along the street. Uh, you can park at the Bridge Street School. And, uh, well, park in downtown. Support the downtown businesses and then walk, walk, walk up to Historic Northampton. Okay. And any cost? Thanks. Any tickets? All oh, free. free. All free. Historic Northampton. I want to thank you both, uh, Laurie Sanders and Betty Sharp, not just for being co-directors of Historic Northampton, not for just for being here today, but for helping to forge uh, a sense of history uh, for all of us. This extraordinary community uh, in which we live and work is, uh, is not a brand new one. It has a long history, and it's a grand history. Grand opening of the Shepherd Barn, Saturday, August 19th from 2 to 4. Thank you for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember, walk the walk. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. 
Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. WHMP Northampton.